welcome back to Plastic Surgery Decoded, the podcast where we demystify plastic surgery and provide a foundation for understanding it, whether you're actually considering a procedure or you're just curious. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Regina Newhan, and in this season number four, you'll find a new approach, including interviews and covering a wide variety of subjects. But after you listen to this episode, I encourage you to go back and really explore the previous seasons as they are full of valuable information. You get to pick and choose what to learn about next. Season one covers common aesthetic or cosmetic surgery topics and skincare, while season two explains reconstructive surgery topics. Then season three goes over general questions about plastic surgery. Remember that this podcast reflects my experience and opinion, as well as those of any guest interviewed. It is not intended to provide medical advice, nor is it a substitute for a formal consultation with your physician. So stay tuned for this interesting journey we'll take together in the ever-expanding world of plastic surgery. Let's go. With the narrow view of plastic surgery that is projected in the media today, the average person may have a misunderstanding of what the broader field of plastic surgery is really all about. Actually, it has a fascinating and often surprising history that most people don't realize. And now there's been a new book written that weaves the tale of plastic surgery through the centuries, from the earliest developments to the innovation of facial reconstruction after devastating World War injuries, to more current progress for both cosmetic and reconstructive procedures, plus a nod to the future. And it's peppered along the way with many engaging stories. The book is entitled, From Trenches to Transplants, Changing Lives with Plastic Surgery. So how lucky is it that we have with us today the author, Dr. R. Barrett Noon, who is an accomplished plastic surgeon in his own right. Hope you're settled into a comfy spot for a great listen. Let's go right to our interesting conversation. Dr. Noon, currently in Pennsylvania, has had a lengthy and storied career. He's been particularly instrumental in the progress of breast reconstruction after cancer, and among other publications, his textbook, Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery of the Breast, has been an essential aid for many a plastic surgeon. He has also contributed extensively to the field through his many leadership roles. He is greatly revered by colleagues and staff, students, and patients alike. And we are so fortunate to have him join us in conversation today. It is particularly on the occasion of his authoring of a new book entitled From Trenches to Transplants, Changing Lives with Plastic Surgery. It is full of fascinating information that the public will enjoy. Welcome, Dr. Noon. Thank you very much, Dr. Noon. I'm, I'm happy to be here and to talk with you. Oh, that's great. Now, your book has a whole chapter on it, but could you describe the condensed version of your trajectory into plastic surgery? Well, I finished medical school at the University of Pennsylvania, and I became interested in obstetrics and gynecology, as a matter of fact. And in those days, we had a rotating internship where you went from one specialty to another, including medicine and pediatrics and what have you. And uh, I was planning on going into obstetrics, and I was rotating at the time in that internship on pediatrics. And one of my friends, Marsha, cut her tendon in an operating room accident. Gracious. And she was scheduled to go into pediatrics. So she came and asked me if I would trade my second month of pediatrics for 
her surgery rotation. I had not yet had my surgery rotations. And I said, sure, I'm happy to. So I went to her surgery rotation, what happened to be plastic surgery. Ah. I changed my mind after one month as an intern on plastic surgery and getting introduced to giants in plastic surgery at the University of Pennsylvania, who I'd never met before. And I then changed from obstetrics and gynecology into general surgery and then into plastic surgery subsequently. As you know, in those days, 1966, when I was introduced as an intern to plastic surgery, in those days, you needed to do general surgery training first, at least extensive general surgery training, and usually full general surgery training if you wanted to get into the best plastic surgery residencies. Right. So that's what I did, and I did it at Penn with a brief interruption to uh, serve in the Air Force during the Vietnam War. Once you did start practice, what was the ultimate scope of your practice? Fortunately, I started practice during what I call the golden decade, plastic surgery. Ah. What I call the golden decade is 1972 to 1982. I see. That is when everything happened in plastic surgery. Hand surgery had been a subspecialty of plastic surgery since the Korean War, but it gained popularity during that time. But during the golden decade, which was the end of my residency and the beginning of practice, brand new things came into being. Craniofacial surgery, microsurgery, the myocutaneous flap, breast reconstruction in general from delayed reconstruction to immediate reconstruction. Changes in cosmetic surgery with the introduction of liposuction in 1982. So that 10-year period, there were no fellowships, really. Mm. And when we finished residency, most of us tried to do everything. Yeah. And so during that period of time, I started off in practice doing head and neck cancer surgery, ablative and reconstructive. And then followed that with uh, sojourn into hand surgery with microsurgery, and then morphed into other areas of reconstruction. I concentrated mostly on breast cancer reconstruction, and then morphed into cosmetic surgery as well mm -hmm. over the years. So mm -hmm. that's that's how it all happened. It was a progression, depending on what was new and important at that time and what was uh, available in, in the community and at the university and what have you. Well, and you're kind of highlighting what I love about plastic surgery is the variety of types of cases we get to participate in and the variety of types of patients we can help. That's exactly right. The variety then was great because what's happened since then, of course, as you well know, is that fellowships have developed and people have become very subspecialized so that they don't have the great variety that we experienced back in that day. And uh, the variety that we had was very exciting and it was an exciting time to practice plastic surgery. Well, I want to go back just briefly when you were talking about how you started out thinking you were going to go into OBGYN and then you did switch to plastic surgery for your career, though I'm sure there are so many to choose from. Could you tell us a quick patient story that maybe helped you realize you had chosen the right profession? One of the really good patient stories was in the early days of microsurgery. 
I was developing a microsurgery laboratory at Penn at Pennsylvania Hospital. We got a call from South Jersey where a carpenter had cut off his hand accidentally Mm. at the wrist. Yeah, horrible injury. And replantation of hands at that time was really pretty rare in the Northeast. Putting a hand back on when it's been amputated is what replantation is, actually. Yeah. And uh, so when this happened to Frank, he lost his hand and his partner said, Frank, your glove is on the floor. And he said, uh, that's not my glove, that's my hand. Oh, my God. So they, they moved him to Philadelphia, and we spent a lot of time in the very early days of microsurgery. This was 1978, putting the hand back on by hooking up the arteries and veins and nerves and tendons and bones and what have you to get his hand back. That was a very dramatic early story. When I was writing the book, I needed to have some information about what happened to Frank. So I went on Uh peoplelooker.com and Googled him. And unfortunately, he had died in his late 60s. But his daughter contacted me. And we had a lovely discussion about about her dad, who went back to carpentry and continued to do work with his place back on hand and uh, did a number of things. And she said he was even a pretty good amateur cook. Oh, gosh. uh, That had to make you feel good. That's a great story, I think. Yeah, that is fantastic. Well, now you and I share something in that the intended audience of both your book and this podcast is the public at large. What spurred you to write a book about the historical path of plastic surgery, particularly geared toward the public? Well, I've always had a long interest in history of surgery and history of plastic surgery. And in my early career, working my way through college as a journalist and newspaper reporter, I got used to writing things. So I wanted to put something together for the general public so that they would be able to understand that plastic surgery is more than just erasing wrinkles and, uh, and enlarging breasts. That's right. So I, I decided to take all these interests and put them together as I retired. And you know what it's like to be in that position. That's right. And as I retired, what am I going to do with my time? So I had taken notes over the years of people I've interviewed and I'm senior enough to have interviewed one of the founders of the specialty who was in World War I. When I was a resident, he was in his early 90s, and I interviewed him, Dr. Robert Ivey, and, and put him in the book. And I've met many, many people over the years uh, in various organizations and various jobs in plastic surgery who uh, I have either worked with or interviewed at some point. And I put it all together to try to make it for the public. Why is it written for the general public? Well, I wanted to really explain the whole depth of the specialty and the breadth and width of the specialty to the good reader. So what I did is I talked with my wife and some of her book club members and asked how this should be done. And they said, well, History is very good, but try to mix it in with patient stories. Absolutely. So that's what I did. I went back to the drawing board, and the thread throughout the book, which you have read, is about patients. Yeah. 
and it's about the progress of the specialty and the history of the specialty told through the eyes of patients I have treated or have been treated by surgeons that I have known. Yeah. And you did a beautiful job with that. It's very well written. It's uh, easy to read, and it's very engaging as well. So congratulations on that. Thank you. You know, you took plenty of notes uh, throughout your career, but how long did it really take to research and write this book? Well, getting the bibliography together was the early chore. And I started that in about 2016 and uh, outlining the book in about 2016 and then getting the patient stories going. So it took about five to six years to finish the book, working on it part-time. I didn't do it as a full-time project, yeah. but that's how long it took. Wow, that's, that's a good bit of time. And I'm happy it took that long because when you get to the final chapter on transplantation, which means taking parts of the body from people who have deceased and who are on life support and then transplanting them to live people, uh, that really came to being a lot in the 2015 and in the late 2000s. So I'm glad I waited that long before I wrote the entire book. There you go. You covered full spectrum that way. Now, people can find beautifully written detail about the history of plastic surgery in your book. But for our limited time here, could you just briefly describe what you consider to be the beginnings of plastic surgery principles and procedures? You know, how far back did they go and how did it become its own specialty? How about 1000 BC? Ah, That is far (laughs) back. Amazing. That's as far back as, as I know. Yeah. Somewhere between 1,000 and 800 B.C., there was a surgeon in northern India called Shashutra. Mm -hmm. And he developed the technique of taking skin from the forehead, keeping it alive through the vessels that went to the forehead, and shifting it to cover defects and deformities of the nose. Mm -hmm. That was called the Indian method of rhinoplasty. That technique of nose reconstruction, as you know, is still used today in some form of modification for removing cancers of the nose and then reconstructing the nose. And recreating, yeah. Using the forehead flap. That's the Indian method. Yeah, it's pretty incredible, actually. And then it progressed through time, and the Italian method, which is the one that has the most historical popularity, occurred during the Renaissance with Caspar Tagliacozzi in uh, Bologna, Italy. And that was a technique whereby the arm was placed up on the nose and attached there for three weeks while the tissue from the arm grew to the nose and used that way. A little inconvenient, I'd imagine. (laughs) But that did not stand the test of time to continue today. Yeah. Although Tagliacozzi is recognized worldwide for this, uh, people have sort of forgotten about Shashutra, mm-hmm. <laughs> although we use this technique all the time. Yeah, gosh. As you've outlined in your book, there has been so much progress in the field of plastic surgery, historically, but also some of that is in the golden decade you talked about. But uh, what do you think are one or two achievements that you feel were particularly groundbreaking for plastic surgery as a field and why? I think reconstructive surgery, one of the biggest groundbreaking introductions was craniofacial surgery, Ah. which happened in the early 1970s. Dr. Paul Tessier from Paris introduced operating on 
facial bones and the skull from both inside the skull at the brain level and outside moving bones around on the face in order to treat deformities, birth deformities, and also deformities from injury. And I think that was a groundbreaking development. And about the same time, uh, microsurgery, the ability to put little tiny blood vessels together under a microscope in order to provide blood supply, namely nutrition, to areas of the body where you were moving tissue around Mm -hmm. or replacing lost tissue by microsurgery. I think they were the two biggest advances that have come along. Mm -hmm. And what people don't remember is the introduction of plastic surgery into the transplantation world. Ah, yes. And Dr. Joseph Murray, who was a plastic surgeon in Boston, during his general surgery residency, was assigned to Valley Forge Army Hospital in suburban Philadelphia, where he served as a surgeon during World War II. So that they were treating patients at that time who had a tremendous amount of burns, and they were taking skin from deceased soldiers and transplanting it to patients who needed it, as temporary coverage before they could get skin from another part of the body. They needed to delay it for a while because they were running out of what we call donor sites, the part where you move the skin from to the new place. Right. So that Dr. Murray and his colleagues observed that the closer related the donor was to the recipient, the longer the skin graft lasted before it was rejected. Yes. So Murray took this concept back to Boston, to Harvard, and worked in a research lab on tissue transplantation, and then did the first kidney transplant done between identical twins in uh, 1958. He went on to get a Nobel Prize and is the only plastic surgeon to receive a Nobel Prize. How about that? So that's the early days of transplantation surgery and actually done by a plastic surgeon. Yeah, impressive. Well, on the flip side, do you feel like there have been some missteps along the way in the progress of plastic surgery? Uh, You know, have some things gone too far in the zeal of constant improvement? I think that probably the biggest misstep in plastic surgery, in my experience, has been the breast implant. Ah, what do you think? The breast implant was introduced in the 1960s by Dow Corning. And the Food and Drug Administration classified the breast implant as a class two device, which meant that it did not have to show research about whether it was effective or safe. The first breast implant was placed in a woman by the name of Temi Jean Lindsay by Dr. Giroux in Houston. 26 years later, believe it or not, we were in a big major problem with the breast implant debacle, which came into being in the 1990s, early 1990s. But in 1988, 26 years later, the Food and Drug Administration decided that they were going to reclassify breast implants as class three, which means that it needed to have pre-market approval before it was sold to the patient or to the plastic surgeon and before it was manufactured and sold, it had to prove 
that it was safe and effective. Now, that was 1988, which was a long time after people were doing breast implants. Mm -hmm. And I think that if, we're, if there was a misstep by plastic surgery, it was during that 20-year period when the specialty itself did not do the research necessary to show that breast implants did not cause autoimmune disease, meaning connective tissue disease, did not cause joint pain, etc., and certainly did not cause cancer. So what's happened since then is that plastic surgery never availed themselves of the opportunity to do that because we relied on the breast implant manufacturers who did absolutely nothing because they did not have to. Mm -hmm. In the 1960s, when breast implants came out, the manufacturer did not have to show research to prove that they were safe. Hmm. And that did not happen until the late 80s. And then we had a big moratorium all through the 90s on using breast implants for, for augmentation mammoplasty patients. So that's, I think, is one of the biggest missteps that's, that we've taken with the specialty. What do you think about the progression of breast implants these days? It's very interesting because we've gone from implants that started off being silicone gel with thick shells and they caused a lot of scar tissue around the outside of the implants and that was called a capsule contracture so in order to get rid of the thick shells the manufacturers made the shells very thin and what happened then is that the breast implants fell apart and ruptured and the, and the silicone went into the breast tissue and went into the other tissues around the chest yes. So that was the problem then. So another way to try to solve this problem of the scar tissue forming is that the manufacturers took breast implants and made them with a roughened surface, which were called textured silicone implants. And now we have found that textured silicone implants may well be a precursor to what we call anaplastic large cell lymphoma, which is ALCL which is now being found around textured breast implants, and that's a cancer. It's really been a challenge, and a large part of my practice at the time was mainly breast reconstruction with implants and then with tissue from the abdomen and mm -hmm. tissue from the back and what have you, but it was a difficult time to practice plastic surgery in the 1990s. Interesting. Well, it's great to get your perspective on that. You know, and that touches on my next question. I think most people understand the merit of reconstructive surgeries, but could you relay your feeling about cosmetic surgery? Does it have a worthwhile role in our society? And if so, is there maybe a patient story or two you can think of that illustrates that? Oh, I think what you have to do with that is to define what you mean by cosmetic surgery. Uh, reconstructive procedures may be considered cosmetic because they improve somebody's appearance. Truth, yes. I think the strict definition of cosmetic surgery is to take something which may be considered normal appearing to most people mm -hmm. and make it improved so that the patient feels better about himself or herself going along. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the uh, common conception of cosmetic surgery. I like to talk about the interface of reconstructive and cosmetic surgery, which is a breast reduction. Oh, yeah. A common operation, I performed 2,000 of them during my practice, and it was an operation whereby a young woman 
has very large breasts, larger than her body size, which cause symptoms, back pain, neck pain, irritation of the skin of the shoulders by the bra straps, irritation in the folds beneath the breast, and that is considered reconstructive when you reduce a woman's breasts and make them consistent with her body image. But to that woman, it's also cosmetic Mm -hmm. because it's making her look better and it's making Mm -hmm. her feel better about herself. So many operations are both cosmetic and reconstructive. But when you get to the strictly cosmetic procedures, such as a facelift, for example, an interesting story is that there was a Philadelphia city councilwoman, and this is this story is in the book, and she decided that she wanted to look a little younger and look a little better, and she uh, came early in the summer during the time when there was no city council meetings and asked for a facelift. So I did her facelift, and when the council reconvened in the fall, everyone said, you look so good. Did you take a long vacation? What happened? So she says, excuse me, and she left the interview and called me on the phone. And she said, can I tell these interviewers that you did my facelift? Uh And I said, sure, go right ahead if you don't mind. So she said, yes. So I'll tell you the truth. I had my facelift done. And Dr. Noon did it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's an interesting story about someone who was in the public eye yeah. who really, uh, really wanted to look better because of her job and her image, etc., and was happy with her result. Well, it made a huge difference for her. And, you know, it's interesting the way she described it, because that's really what uh, we as plastic surgeons aspire to. We don't want things to be extremely obvious, but we want to be told that, oh, you look so great. Did you just come back from vacation or what has happened? Right. That's exactly the story. It was a funny story because I'm in the middle of office hours. Oh. I'm seeing patients and my, my, my receptionist interrupted me. Can you take this call from such and such? And I said, well, sure. So I took her call and she said, I just want to tell these reporters. Can I tell them the truth? <laughs> <laughs> You're like, that's up to you. <laughs> said, Absolutely. Oh, what a great story. Well, you know, you devoted a section of your book to the future of plastic surgery. What direction would you like the field to go next, if anything were possible? If anything were possible, I don't see a lot of real advances in cosmetic surgery. You know, there are refinements in the operations that we do, for sure. The tissue underneath the skin, since 1979, we've been moving that in facelifts and refinements in nose surgery and what have you, but I don't see a lot of real new frontiers in cosmetic surgery. It'll be using the techniques that we learn, such as liposuction, etc., and getting them to be used appropriately. Mm-hmm. I think the big advances, the, if you can use your imagination... We can now take hands from deceased children and transplant them to live people who need hands. Now, you may say, well, you shouldn't do that because you're going to have to use anti-rejection drugs. You're going to have to give that recipient patient strong medications, which can be life-threatening. And is it really worth it to do it? 
Now, in the book, you, you, you've seen in chapter 14, we have a section in there about the child at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia. I love this story. Who received hands at age seven to replace his hands that he lost at age two. Now, what happened with him is he also lost his kidneys from, an, from the same infection. So his mother donated a kidney so that he was put on anti-rejection drugs in order to prevent the kidneys from being rejected. So he already had that going. So when they did his hand transplants in 2015 at Children's Hospital, he got hands from a unfortunate child who passed away in the Midwest and they took his hands and transported them to Zion. And the hands at age seven grew with Zion exactly as they would grow with any seven-year-old. That's fantastic. And so they survived and he's doing very well. He plays baseball. He's now 15 years old and plays the cello in the school orchestra. Oh, great. So that's a great story. And the anti-rejection drugs were not needed in that person. Love that. And it's the same way with face transplants. So if somebody has his face burned beyond recognition and gets a face transplant, you've got to put them on anti-rejection drugs, which can be life-threatening. So I think the future in transplantation is going to be where the immunologists are going to have to work with surgeons and develop safe methods of anti-rejection so that it could be as simple as taking an aspirin or Tylenol so that the part is not rejected. And when that happens, the sky is the limit. You'll be able to reconstruct all kinds of deformities by taking, uh, unfortunately, organs and, and tissue of the face and skin and what have you from deceased patients who are on life support. And that's one future uh, progress, which, uh, you know, things have moved so quickly along in medicine that it's not hard to realize that maybe they can solve this problem. Maybe the uh, immunologists can work on it and solve it. And the other area that I think is potentially fascinating is tissue engineering. Mm -hmm. We can now take muscle from a patient, a muscle biopsy, and put it in a laboratory dish and convert it with stem cells into cartilage. Mm. So if you can think of if you can think about what would happen, cartilage is uh, sort of like bone. It's it's what the ear is made out of. So if you can take that muscle and convert it into cartilage, why can't you take some muscle and convert it into an ear, and mold it into an ear and then place it into the patient? Amazing. Oh, and if you really can do that with an ear, why can't you do it with a nose? And why can't you do it with other things on the face? So tissue engineering is in its infancy. Yeah. It's just starting. But you can imagine 50 to 100 years from now, people may be growing faces in the laboratory. It's just incredible to think about, but fascinating. <laughs> well, I, I mean, it, it, you have to sort of think about it. And the progress has been so great in the specialty in my lifetime and in yours. Yeah. Uh, that the, the specialty has come a long way. And, uh, and it's, done, it's done some remarkable things.
But to answer your questions, I think they're the areas. I think cosmetic surgery will have some improvements, but they're mainly refinements in what we do. Appreciate your perspective on that because um, it's just very exciting to think about all those possibilities. <laughs> it is. Well, you know, you have this wonderful book. Where can people find your book if they would like to? Well, I think it's on Amazon and it's also on uh, Kindle Direct Publishing for so it can be accessed uh, with uh, electronics. And any of the commercial outlets such as Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, mm-hmm. But Amazon is probably the one that most people know about directly. Oh, it's a great book. Again, it's From Trenches to Transplants, Changing Lives with Plastic Surgery by Dr. R. Barrett Noon. Any final words for our listeners? It's been such a delight listening to you and hearing your stories and getting your perspective. Anything you'd like to leave the listeners with about plastic surgery in general or just your experiences or... A little bit about the book, I think, uh, sure. might be interesting. It, it, the book is written in a genre called narrative nonfiction. Ah. In other words, everything in it is true and based on extensive research and documentation. But the way it is written, it is written for the person, the, the book club reader, Narrative nonfiction, also known as creative nonfiction, is a little different from your average history book. Mm. Yet we, we talk about history all through the book and illustrate it with patient stories. And I think that's the key to the whole thing. The stories of patients I have known, the stories of plastic surgeons I have known, what they've contributed to the specialty, and it's told in a way that the, hopefully the book club reader uh, will enjoy reading. Yes, I'm sure they will. I know I enjoyed it very much. So, Well, Dr. Noon, thank you so much for sharing some time with us today and giving us some great information and leaving us with really a lot to think about in terms of the broad spectrum of what plastic surgery entails and uh, some interesting information about the history of it and perhaps trajectory of where it's going. So it's been wonderful chatting with you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Nuhana. It was wonderful meeting you and uh, discussing the book with you on the podcast. Great. Take care. Well, that's our show for today. Hope you enjoyed it and learned something, too. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Please share this podcast with someone else who might be interested. And while you're at it, check out the podcast website for related topics to explore. It's www.plasticsurgerydecoded.com. And as always, thank you for listening to Plastic Surgery Decoded.